Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. You're listening to The Silver Stream, a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests using visual artworks, writing and music as navigation points within a stream of consciousness. I'm Byzantia Harlow, a visual artist and the creator and host of The Silver Stream. For today's episode, Apathenia, I'm joined by guest collaborator, artist Candida Powell-Williams. You can find today's images, track list and reading references on my Instagram at Byzantia Harlow. For those unfamiliar with Candida's practice, her installations play with the relationship between sculpture, live performance and animation. Her research-based, process-led practice is guided by questions about human attempts to understand our body in the universe through the connection between objects, action and belief. The sculptural landscapes she creates are often a response to researching the slippage that occurs to the meaning of historical artefacts over time aiming to confront our relationship to memory and storytelling. Solo exhibitions include The Gates of Apathenia at Bossenbaum, London, and Command Lines at Boyd Gallery, Northern Ireland, both in 2019. She's also had exhibitions and performances at Serpentine Galleries, Freeze Live London, Museum of Modern Art, San Paolo, and in 2018, she was artist-in-residence at the Warburg Institute London and was awarded the Mother Art Prize. We have some overlapping areas of interest in terms of gaps between source and sample, exploring how people may create meaning from the meaningless or experience objects as containers through which to access and construct emotion and memory. We have also both created our own tarot decks, which relate to our performance practices, although we come at things from very different perspectives. Um, There is a maxim that the best way to understand the tarot is to create your own deck. Today's episode will consider how artists may use what they have at their disposal in order to reimagine their realities. Gaps between facts and fictions, which can become veneers to be layered and constructed shaped into liminal, transient spaces, created worlds of wonder. Topics explored previously within the Silver Stream, but with a specific lens today, as we explore the hinterlands between synchronicity and magical thinking, and fine lines between reality and construct. Apathenia is the tendency to mistakenly perceive connections and meaning between unrelated things, The term was coined by psychiatrist Klaus Konrad in his 1958 publication on the beginning stages of schizophrenia. He defined it as unmotivated seeing of connections accompanied by a specific feeling of abnormal meaningfulness. 
He described the early stages of delusional thought as self-referential over-interpretations of actual sensory perceptions, as opposed to hallucinations. To begin today, I'd like to play an extract from one of my favorite ever interviews of Terence McKenna, uh, discussing time in the I Ching, an ancient Chinese divination text. Here he discusses synchronicities. Now, Jung's explanation of this was what he called uh, a causal connectedness or synchronicity. This was simply the idea that it was possible for there to be a coincidence of a congruence between an internal state, a psychological state, and an exterior event. Uh, an obvious example of this would be you think of someone you haven't thought of for years and an hour later in the mail a letter arrives from them. Mm -hmm. And Jung was fascinated by these kinds of apparent uh, coordinations of the interiorized psychic sphere and the exterior three-dimensional mm -hmm. objective world. M my approach was uh, went somewhat deeper than mm -hmm. Jung's in that I felt that uh, I had looked at many divinatory systems with the notion that I was looking at uh, artifacts of culture, uh, productions of the human mind that were to a large degree arbitrary. My involvement with the I Ching led me very slowly and reluctantly to the conclusion that this was not simply a product of a cultural mentality or the stance of a particular people in a time and a place, but rather that the ancient Chinese had somehow gotten a leg up even on modern physics and had produced a theory about time that was in fact objectively uh, possible to correlate with our own experience. In other words, a theory of time much more akin to a physicist's uh, description of it than a shaman's description of it. There are other comparable systems. For example, there's astrology. That's right. Astrology is another one of these systems that seeks to define prepotent relationships in nature that can be known by man in order to ease movement into the future. Uh, the success of astrology, I think, is, is uh, borne out by its persistence. It is, after all, one of the most persistent of human intellectual tools. It was developed four or five thousand years ago. Um, what it, I think what troubles modern human beings about astrology is that it is a mechanistic system. It's like a group of cogs and wheels which all can turn at given rates and therefore their end states can be predicted. But then we're dealing again with the nature of nested cycles. Well, we have a strong intuition of free mm -hmm. will. Yes. And this is why I think quantum physics with its probabilistic notion of, uh, of determinacy has been so attractive to the modern mind. My conclusions looking at the I Ching have been that it is not possible to know the future, for if it were possible to know it, life would be a determinism and thinking would be divorced from meaning mm -hmm. and we would be out of business. 
Uh, but what is possible to know about the future is levels of novelty which future states will fulfill by the happenstance of unpredictable events. Now this is a formal way of saying uh, we know where the road goes but we don't know what the scenery looks like. I think where the future is concerned we can know where the road goes mm -hmm. but we cannot know what the, f what the scenery will look like. People who have looked at my theory have said well these time maps that your computer draws you're trying to get rid of the future and as a matter of fact a map of time no more eliminates the future than a map of South America eliminates the need to go there. It simply gives one a better handle on one's destination. As well as my art practice, including research into spirituality and the tarot, I also perform divinatory readings for people as a separate thing. I love the I Ching and my most recent I Ching reading that I did for a client actually resulted in him sending me the link to what we just heard, which was a really nice synchronicity. And I'm literally always having synchronistic events. Um, and we actually experienced this when we first met. <laughs> Maybe you should like recall your, your memory of that. Um, so I think I think I was aware of you via social media, potentially. And then my friend Rob Lai was recording an episode with you. I don't think he'd done it at that point. Oh, I forgot that bit, yeah. I don't think he'd done it at that point, but you definitely had met. Yes. And then um, I was invited to an event in a house in Clapton. And yeah. I think that very day I had met with Rob Lai and he had told me about how he was going to record this episode with you. And it was at Zarina's house who had been a previous radio episode yes. guest of mine as well. And who, yeah, who we've both worked with for Art Night. Exactly, and it was Lima performing who then later did a music interlude for another radio episode yes. of mine. So very weird coincidences. <laughs> but yeah, you, we, so I was aware of you but hadn't met you, didn't know what you looked like. Yes, oh yes, how did I, I think must must have been because of your radio show and you, yeah. what you look like yeah. yeah and then so we met at this thing but you had said to me that you had just been speaking about me or something or you yes. thought you'd seen me somewhere else oh yes I'd completely forgotten this yeah. yes oh my goodness that was so weird I was with someone else earlier and yeah. I thought I'd seen you somewhere yeah and then you appeared yeah and so then we were talking about tarot because we both done tarot and you were there with your gallery yes right um and she was looking at my cards and she liked my star card uh-huh and then Lima did a performance and oh, I hadn't so seen weird. this before yes. and she actually ended up pulling tarot cards of which Lana took one and so she took, gave one to Lana who'd gone to the other side of the room and she sent you a picture of the card that she'd been given and it was the star yeah, card that was such a weird set of events <laughs> so that was the synchronistic thing of us meeting which is quite nice um so it, I don't know it's interesting whether or not this is just coincidental or not. I believe there's no such thing as coincidence, but we'll get into this. Um, I'd like to mention, though, Leonora Piper, who is a Victorian spiritualist, and I would say one of the most extraordinary mediums that ever lived. That's quite a statement, of course. Um, but she famously sort of passed on details from dead relatives and then was investigated by loads of spiritualist debunkers and hoax experts. And Richard Hodgson was one of these very famous kind of debunkers. 
and he was investigating her and then died of a sudden heart attack only then to reappear sort of through her and communicate through her from the dead to substantiate her claims, saying information that she couldn't have known otherwise. So this is like a really interesting idea of, um, you know, what is, you know, what is true or false. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to say if mediums are fraudsters, are in fact communicating with the spirit world, um, or perhaps they can't commune with the dead, but they can read the sitter's mind, or it could be about body language or any combination. So these are kind of interesting questions when we're thinking of tarot reading as well, um, about how humans kind of construct meaning and weave meaning into object and encounter and what this process is actually about. You know, we do look for patterns to create meaning from the meaninglessness of every day. Um, that's quite a nice quote when I was doing my research into the tarot um, history um, uh, there was a nice uh, extract from a book called Between Magic and Logic and it, uh, it goes like this to bring order into the glittering chaos of the firmament we have to group the stars in some way to create fixed patterns which the memory can hold we do not do this by abstract reflection but almost automatically by projecting into the multitude of star images of our own world Exploiting the faintest hint of resemblance, we speak of the dipper, the plough, the swan, and thus not only people the sky with creatures of our own making, but also subject it to our mental grasp. Once we have completed the process of projection, we are no longer likely to lose our way. The night sky can guide us as our imagination has helped us to create the fixed landmarks of our orientation. The astronomical knowledge of the ancient world remained enshrined in these images of the constellations, even where they were used for astrological practice. It was only when it destroyed the original form of the night sky and substituted it for a purely imaginary agglomeration of fantastical images that magic, though really menaced, the process of orientation. Yeah, I mean, we all want to experience and believe. And I always feel it's, you know, not whether something is accurate or not that matters, but kind of the sincerity or the intention with which it's offered and engaged with. Um, On early radio episodes, I've discussed how today's secular society is out of step with the majority of human races sort of time on Earth, in which magic and ritual were kind of the norm. I feel we've retained an inbuilt magical thinking within this secularism and that because of this, we feel a gap that was once filled by the spiritual or the sublime. And it's in this gap that artworks can speak to us. Um, As humans, we need hope and faith, even if we may feel we are in part kidding ourselves. You know, if you think of kids as well, it's like when you're a child, when someone tells you to hide, you like cover your eyes. And it's almost this idea of if you can't see your hiding, almost like this idea of like, you are able to change the world around you through your action. There's something that's there about magical thinking, I think. There's quite a lot written about uh, uh, how magical thinking really begins with child, with the way that child, the child brain works. So their, their belief, their absolute fundamental belief that they can alter their um, situation through their actions. Exactly. Which I do believe in manifestation, but anyway. Um, <laughs> we lose it along the way somewhere, that, that feeling that we have control. Yes, yes, definitely. But we try to like get it back, <laughs> maybe especially yes. at the moment, which you're going to talk about. 
Um, in To Run Wild In It, which is an experimental novella about tarot, which was published in 2018, David Keenan writes, when somebody says they don't believe in magic, ask them if they believe in art. Ask them if they believe in an invisible power which they have no way of proving has any sort of objective existence whatsoever and yet is capable of transforming the world and the persons in it forever. So the boundaries of faith and belief, cause and effect are extremely blurry and undefined. There's a really good quote from psychoanalyst Anthony Storr's Feet of Clay, which was published in 1996. Um, his former bodyguard wrote that when Rajneesh was rambling after inhaling nitrous oxide, he once said, I'm so relieved that I don't have to pretend to be enlightened anymore. Poor Krishnamurti, he still has to pretend. I think there's something really great about this quote about sort of being trapped by your beliefs. I've been getting a lot of spell work done as part of my research for an upcoming body of work called Take What Resonates. And I got a left-hand practitioner to cast a sort of very intense spell for my career. And now every time I get some good press or good news, I feel like this is why, although I've always kind of had things like this before. Um, maybe that is because I'm a natural at manifestation, like most artists. Um, but I did sell like a major sort of thing within my work relating to my tarot project unexpectedly after his spell, like the day after. So I don't know, there could be something in that. A past radio guest and good friend of mine, Libby Heaney, who also created her own tarot deck based around the internet and who I've spoken to lots about my research during lockdown, asked if I would like at some point stop getting any work done or having any readings done and see how that affected you know my work and my my personal life I'm like too superstitious now <laughs> to stop at the moment although the research the research phase was meant to end in July like a year after it began I'm still doing occasional stuff <laughs> but um whether or not it is the spells or me just attributing like arbitrary events to them the events still take on this numinous and magical quality to me um, and as I always say within my YouTube tarot project, the best way to predict the future is to create the future. And at least I am doing sort of manifestation stuff as opposed to just asking endless questions. So it's a bit more liberating. Um, but maybe this is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Again, this is like a matter of belief. Um, when I was uh, looking at the sort of different approaches to the tarot, I came across the Italo Calvino book, uh, Castle of Cross Destinies. Um, it's a wonderful book in which he uses tarot cards as a story-making machine. So this is when they stop being about the future and just about story-making and constructing. Um, and he talks, in a way, when, what you were saying about this sort of fanatical approach. He, he has this fanatical obsession with the cards and they have a haunting hold over him, um, but in a resolutely not superstitious way. He basically arranges the cards in front of him like a cartoon strip, strip and uses that to generate stories. But he talks of this obsession um, and he says, and I quote, I published this book to be free of it. It has obsessed me for years. I began by trying to line up tarots at random to see if I could read a story in them. The waverer's tale emerged. I started writing it down. I looked for other combinations of the same cards. I realized the cards were a machine for constructing stories. I thought of a book and I imagined its frame, the mute characters, the forest, the inn. I was tempted by the diabolical idea of conjuring up all the stories that could be constrained in a tarot deck. And there is a sort of idea that 
all stories that ever could be and all people could, that could ever be will exist within the tarot. <laughs> so what really, um, the reading that book and his approach to it made me think is that um, this sort of notion of fairy tale and enchantment was there even though it doesn't have the superstitious element um, and it's just brought in through a different structure and language. Mm. Um, and the, these mute storytellers still have this kind of powerful hold over the people that are uh, um, there with them. Yeah, that's super nice. I think, you know, relating this back to kind of artworks and things, there's a section from Magic Show, um, which I think kind of touches on some of these things, which was uh, Magic Show is a book to accompany an exhibition of the same title which was curated by writer and artist, actually one of my favourite writers, Sally O'Reilly, and she was actually my tutor at the RCA, um, as well as Jonathan Allen, who's the curator of the Magic Circle Museum. The exhibition took place in 2009, and I'll quote from the book now. True and false belief are confounded when the artist declares that it does not actually matter whether or not magical powers supposedly invested in an object really exist. The viewer's mental projection is a more interesting phenomenon. Art is essentially grounded in untruth, the fabrication of alternate versions of reality. And I feel like this idea of like creating narrative and creating universes and sort of storytelling is one of the appeals maybe of tarot to artists, because I feel like that's what we're kind of doing all the time anyway. Um, actually, when I was doing my research for um for tarot i um met jonathan allen i meant to say that to you so that's another weird synchronicity (laughs) he um he also is a sort of lifetime member of the um the warburg institute and we met there he also interestingly has this very different approach to looking at all of this stuff as his involvement in the magic circle Mm. is to do with performing magic Mm rather than the sort of spiritual um, self-transformation that we're, we've been looking at. Yeah, it's like magic with a small C, not a K. Right. But interestingly, um, I, I kind of disagreed with him because I feel like this process of doing the tarot does have an element of kind of performance to it, um, which is why I put quite a lot of white gloves in my installations, mm. um, because I think there's this element of the power play mm. between the querent and reader. Um, but to go back to what you're saying about art and um, uh, kind of creating narratives, um, in Susan Sontag's Aesthetics of Solitude, she says, every era has to reinvent the project of spirituality for itself. Spirituality equals plans, terminologies, ideas of deportment aimed at the resolution of painful structural contradictions inherent in the human situation, at the completion of human consciousness, at transcendence. Art itself, a form of mystification, endures a succession of cries of demystification. Older artistic goals are assailed and ostensibly replaced. Outgrown maps of consciousness are redrawn. Uh, so, you know, she really talks about that relationship between art and uh, mysti- the mystification, or demystifying it, mm. and the tarot could come into that. Um, And also, in terms of um, consciousness, when uh, I was recently introduced to the wonderful artist Candice Jacobs, and she uh, introduced me to neuroscience Anil Seth, and he has a really brilliant TED talk about his uh, investigations into consciousness. Uh, Basically, what he explains, and I hope I don't end up misquoting him, is that the brain constructs conscious reality based on guesswork 
And that guesswork is something passed down through the genome. So it's a sort of um, inherited memory. And uh, I've sort of found some quotes online. He says, we perceive our surroundings and ourselves within them, not as they are, but as is useful to us to do so. Each of us navigates the buzzing, blooming profusion of our individual worlds by following a probabilistic Adrian's thread of fulfilling perpetual prophecies. Mm. All perceptions are acts of interpretation, they're acts of informed guesswork that the brain applies when it encounters sensory data. Your brain's best guesswork at the causes of that sensory information. Now, all this puts the brain's basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in from the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. Mm. And I feel like that's very much where I where I met with tarot that the potential for it for you to interpret those was coming from the inside out not from the outside to you mm-hmm. <laughs> how yeah so how do you do you want to say how you like and how do you have a system for how you um I absolutely read f- with the person and um usually although not always I will I will allow them to not like, they don't have to speak but often I involve them in by asking them questions and that will guide the conversation and that's because the way that I made my tarot was all about the structures from which you sit where you are within the tarot image so I made these kind of architectural dioramas and um, without the archetype at all so that you could fill the space so I would say to the person where do you see yourself are you inside this building or are you outside are you supporting the roof are you looking in and wishing you were there like what's your natural feeling towards that card and where you sit within it and then so so if they felt like for example with the empress card if they felt like they were holding up the roof of the empress's building then there's this sort of structural responsibility and weight that's down on them it's very physical mm. whereas if they're sitting within it they're in this nurtured position mm. so I that's really quite different in a way because I'm responding to their um the, directly to the way mm. that they feel so I guess um you're talking more about having this kind of psychic response and I'm talking more about a conversation of how of, of how how intuition is felt you're kind of I think you're kind of speaking about, yeah, creating a space that enables like a sort of discovery with someone, a collaborative like meaning making, which is Mm. what a lot of tarot reading is, which is why a lot of people would say it's just like, yeah, this idea of projecting meaning into stuff. Mm. So I was having a conversation with a guy last night about cognitive biases and I played him a tarot reading from a reader that I generally think is pretty accurate asking about any potential romantic future between us and I sent it to him because he was like oh let me check this stuff out and see how accurate it is which is cool um and he sent me back a very amazing recording of him responding in real time which he says I can use as research but not material which is really unfortunate because it's like gold (laughs) anyway I was like I want to play it on this radio episode I'm recording tomorrow but anyway um 
But he disagreed with most of her reading, although the final outcome was correct. And he sort of said to me that she was just telling me open-ended statements that my cognitive biases attribute to what I knew or perceived to be the actual truth. And of course, there's an element of this in tarot readings. It can be a collaborative means of sort of like building meaning. However, I know for myself that when I read for someone, um, whether something that I would determine as psychic is occurring as opposed to me just intuitively interpreting the cards. Um, this is obviously like a personal thing, but um, I start to make statements from literally nowhere and I'll often say I have no idea why I'm saying this. Mm. It's probably completely wrong and it's against the meaning of the card or I'll just suddenly, once I read tarot in a room where I have my bird and I was like, I usually don't do this because the bird makes loads of noise, but I feel like it's important and then I started to feel an energy of someone else. I was like, there's someone else here with me in the room, which I'm not like, a, I don't say I'm a medium, but it really came through and the woman was like, that's so weird. My grandmother died recently she loved birds and whenever there are birds that's her way of like I feel like that's her way of communicating with me so stuff weird stuff like that will happen when I feel like I'm doing something psychic um and also I'll start looking at the cards and see different imagery on the card than I've ever noticed before even if it's the cards I've made I'll be like oh I'm noticing this aspect of it where I wouldn't normally so I'll read it in a very different way I always set the intention before the reading that the person I'm reading for will get meanings that are specific for them through my reading and may also receive their own intuitive messages. And many do say they have sudden realizations at the time I do the reading, which I always do pre-recorded and send to them. I don't like doing it with the person because then I feel like I can read them. But I don't know whether, you know, whether that's because the person knows that their reading is happening at a specific time and then they will reflect on their questions internally as I've created a space to facilitate this or whether this is just coincidence or, you know, is this because I can psychically connect to them through an energetic cord and then anchor them into a space where the information from higher powers and entities flows to them? You know, who knows what, you know, that's an individual thing that relies on your kind of own beliefs as to which one of those things is what's happening. When I read tarot for myself or for others, I will only take cards that literally fly out of the pack or that fall out. I don't pull the cards myself because that's just me pulling a card. I feel like that's just like so arbitrary. It's like me pulling a card. For me, it has to fly out or fall out. And then you have to have a belief that something is causing that to happen. So that's where it becomes like this thing about belief. You know, you have to believe there's some kind of higher power that's causing this or even if you don't believe if you pull the cards yourself you have to have some kind of belief that the way that you're shuffling or the way that some system that you've set up is generating the cards you have to have a belief if you believe that tarot is a higher kind of a means to higher knowledge you have to have some kind of belief that something is helping with the ordering somehow if you know what I mean mm -hmm. um but yeah, when I do really accurate readings and I know I can feel it, like I get goosebumps, like mm. I say all sorts of things, my throat might close up and I'll be like, I feel like you can't express yourself, which is what I said to a recent client. It was about this woman. I was like, she feels like she can't express herself. I can't, I feel like I have no voice. And he actually, he's a Bitcoin billionaire and he's going to help me with my business because he said that my reading was so accurate which is another weird thing. Mm. But he was like, the, you use the exact phrase that her psychiatrist oh, uses. Wow. But I think, and the, when I first, when I, the first sort of instance when I lay down the cards, the, the top card that I place on the reading, I don't allow them to have any kind of, uh, so that's the sort of starting point where they're not, in, where they're not giving me any information and it frames the rest of the reading. And then I just, I suppose, yeah, then it does become a collaborative storytelling exercise. But that first bit, it's much more to do with 
my interpretation or the way that I feel and often that's where people get freaked out about that kind of you know that feeling of shock that you could pull a card that has so much or, or you can interpret it in do a you way. pull them and then do a spread uh yeah 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 I don't do spreads I just you they, just pull them out. they just fly out yes yeah 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 well I have got I have I th- I'm much newer to it than you are so I do have quite a rigid structure about the particular reading that I like to do and uh, what I where I place the cards and what I think that yeah. they, that that means to yeah but it's just each person doesn't yeah well I feel like I need a structure because I do sit on the fence between skepticism and yeah. <laughs> so I need the structure to kind of contain me maybe <laughs> um, kind of relating this to the idea of artistic practice I think all art making is about constructing realities and building universes and I personally really love the sensation of entering a complete world with an artist where there is this kind of internal logic, mythology and system of symbols. And I did a past radio episode with a performer, George Finley Ramsey, who spoke of reality as a kind of process. And he talked about a tribe in North America who believed that their job was to pull the sun across the sky each day and that if they didn't do this, the sun wouldn't sort of like rise. For them, this is true. Um, And as is often said in psychotherapy, this is, you know, their truth. So who are we to argue Um, in the same way that, you know, it can be someone's truth that they are receiving knowledge from somewhere else. Does it really matter? That's like their experience almost. Um, But there's another nice quote from Magic Show. We may think of psychoanalysis as a contemporary form of divination, whereby causes are glimpsed, albeit momentarily, without a guarantee of their control. But where divination explains what has been and what will come, psychoanalysis identifies current behavioural tropes and mental mechanisms which artists and magicians can tap into, using archetypes and habits of looking to subvert our expectations, short-circuit logic and apparently perform the incredible. I'd like to play an extract of Joseph Campbell being interviewed about sacred spaces and the relation of myth to landscape now. Sacred places, Delphi, Machu Picchu, Stonehenge, Jerusalem. We recognize these as places where societies came together to express their spiritual concerns. But for some very early societies, as Joseph Campbell points out in his historical atlas of world mythology, the whole earth was a sacred place. Whether living on the wide plains under the great dome of the open sky or in dense forest under a canopy of trees, our ancestors saw the sacred in everything around them. The voices of the gods spoke from the wind and thunder, and the spirit of God flowed in every mountain stream. It was a geography not of city and nation states, but of sacred places, the realm of the mythic imagination. As our ancestors turned from hunting to planting, the stories they told to interpret the mysteries of life changed too. Now the seed, instead of the animal, became the symbol of life, death, and resurrection. The plant died, was buried, and its seed born again. To spiritual visionaries, this image reveals a divine truth as well as a principle of life itself. From death comes life, from sacrifice, bliss. Joseph Campbell explored the nature of these places and the relation of myth to landscape. He visited many of the world's sacred places in preparing the first two volumes of his atlas, The Way of the Animal Powers and The Way of the Seated Earth. But as he often reminded his students at Sarah Lawrence College, You don't have to go on a pilgrimage to find your own sacred place where you can follow your bliss and nourish the activity of your own creative imagination.
does it mean to have a sacred place? This is a term I like to use now as an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour a day or so where you do not know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe to anybody. You don't know what anybody owes to you. But a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and uh, what you might be. This is the place of creative incubation. And uh, first you may find that nothing's happening there. But if you have a sacred place and use it and take advantage of it, uh, something will happen. This place does for you what the plains did for the hunter. For them, the whole thing was a sacred place, do you see? But most of our action is economically or socially determined and does not come out of our life. I don't know whether you've had the experience I've had, but uh, as you get older, the, the claims of the environment upon you are so great that you hardly know where the hell you are. Uh, what is it you intended? You're always doing something for, that is required of you. Uh, this minute, that minute, another minute. Where is your, your, your bliss station, you know? Mm. Try to find it. I identify with the idea of this sacred being a kind of internal space, a space set apart, a place of reflection and introspection rather than necessarily a kind of exterior place found outside of oneself, which we must make a pilgrimage to. Uh, for me, the sacred space is found within the tarot, the container which tarot can create for people, this transitional space, a space that may exist between you and I and the gap between reader and client, the psychic space outside of ourselves where we can place the internal in order to make sense of it, bringing our shadow elements to light. I've been reading an amazing book which another one of my tarot clients sent me called Dispelling Wetico by Paul Levy, which was published in 2013. Speaking about Jung, Levy states, I quote, he emphasized the importance of developing a container, a word which revealingly has multiple meanings to include hold together, to have capacity for, control, restrain and limit, in which to catch troublesome and malevolent spirits. In an earlier book of his titled The Madness of George W. Bush, A Reflection of Our Collective Psychosis, published in 2006, Levy states, Jung was fond of making an analogy between the formation of symbols in the unconscious and the solidification of crystals in a saturated solution. For example, if we dissolve sugar in a solution of water, the solution will eventually reach a saturation point. If a single grain of sugar is then added to the solution, the crystalline structure will spontaneously appear in the solution. A moment of self-reflection could be the very grain of sugar, so to speak, that initiates this process. This is true not only individually, but collectively as a species as well. Any one of us recognizing the dreamlike nature of our situation, owning our shadow, doing our inner and outer work, and waking up to our true nature might be the very act, the very grain of sugar that initiates a change in the entire universe. So I believe that this is what tarot can offer people, a space for reflection and self-reflection. I tell my clients what all the mystics of YouTube have taught me to take what resonates for just this reason. 
If we hear something and know it to be true, it's because we already knew it internally. Just as a prairie child, miles from water, within a dry expanse of land, may hold a seashell to her ear to hear the crash of the ocean waves within it, having never seen the sea in reality. So we too can tap into the archetypal and inexperienced yet ever known. One of my favourite quotes from Jung, which I use in my Lunar Water Tarot YouTube performance series is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Um, and I, I suppose one of my uh, questions, or one of the reasons that I came to Tarot in the first place was to sort of understand why we, why we feel like we need it in the first place. Um, and uh, Antonia Shaw's uh, introduction to my tarot deck, she kind of explains the sort of the key, the key text that I ca- that I've used for the last sort of ten years to kind of frames a lot of my thinking about um, our inability to 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 understand ourselves <laughs> or why we're here. Um, so she says, our primal desire to seek an understanding of our irrational universe is inexplicitly resolute and yet ultimately futile. As Albert Camus explores in The Myth of Syphysis, Camus observes that we clamour for knowledge but are met with a response of unreasonable silence. Um, By the way, that's also the name of my deck. And it is this irreconcilability that generates our absurd relationship to the world. He calls upon the Sisyphean myth of the king who became destined to push a stone uphill for all eternity, only to watch it fall back down again to articulate this plight. For Camus, there is value to be found in the being and doing of pushing a shown, lucidly living our bodily fate. This consciousness does not disavow the absurdity of our existence. Rather, Camus suggests we may accept it actively as non-resolution, embracing our limitations and, our, and acknowledging our ceaseless wish to keep going beyond the possible. So that uh, physical... Um, desire to do and keep going and I feel like that is in the process and performance of tarot and uh, the doing the touch Um, and with my own deck uh, again coming back to this uh, sitting on the on the boundary between skepticism and belief uh, my tarot deck which was uh, design which was made or illustrated from a performance as you mentioned can be read in two different orientations in one direction there are interpretations plus some history and background to the deck and in the other there's a series of vignettes each one describing the performance so describing what they physically did um, and uh, basically the, the performance which was about an hour was uh, four female dancers uh, moving around like giant children's building blocks which created the spaces that I mentioned earlier of each mm. uh, uh, each of the sort of structures that the tarot cards um, or you could exist within so like a building or um, a symbolic form that you could exist next to so were there like a set amount of sort of like um, blocks of I don't know like triangles or whatever and then these women and you were like you create the justice card through creating this structure like this and then they would enact that or did they do it themselves no yeah so I had a very specific architectural form for each one and symbols that went so certain certain blocks would meet together and there would be like a a shape spray paid on spray painted onto the two so as they came together you would see a particular symbol 
um, and at the same time as creating, say, a temple-like shape, a classical temple-like shape. And then there were other ones where I sort of created a, a, a more um, geometric formation, which which related to my interest in occult geometry. So, and then then there was particular gestures that they performed. So this idea of creating or, or moving and a bodily relationship to these things. Um, but the the idea was always that they positioned themselves not as the archetypes, but as part of the architecture. So their bodies became columns or supports for each other. So um, it, they weren't actually. Um, enacting what you were then supposed to project onto because that's one of my fundamental problems with it is this idea that there's a character who's gendered and racially some you know orientated in specific ways that you can't necessarily project onto if you feel excluded from although I should also say that the dancers were all based on me so they were white and about my age most tarot readers do say that although that tarot is not gender specific, it's just about energy. So masculine and feminine energy, but could be felt by male or female, etc. Or Which I totally agree with, but it's just that once you put an image to something, it becomes difficult for us to exist within yeah. it. We'll get back into some of that later to do with like gender and things like this. We're now going to hear a 10 card reading of the vignette orientation. And that comes from, I, tr- I transformed the... Um, 2d deck into an animated video game so you would type into the video game a question and it would generate in a random way the uh 10 10 card reading um with accompanying animation judgment four interlocking digits the corpse makes a triangle with the floor now diametric the screen is scrolling the noise is back this time it is positive It is mirrored on the chest in thick black outlines. Platform jumping. Side bow and eyes covered and uncovered. Side bow again. The leg slips back and bends as the middle finger reaches down to feel the opinion of the floor. The palms are looking out and sometimes in. Something is hidden in the warp zone behind the positive that is turning green to purple. Three of pentagons. One foot in front of the other the heel near the arch of the one behind, trying to build a structure of confidence, mapping out a pattern by relaxing the constraints on regular tiling. The seer. Under the portico, an averted gaze staring into space, but not the space past the clouds. No, instead this space, the one full of dust and moths and minutes. The fool. Find a slope. Push on the white and black collar. Lean in to lift up. Lengthen the leg a dog yapping at the feet. See the top and the bottom simultaneously as if there is no difference between them at all. A baby's toes like little fleshy buds grow into something like cracked salt dough. In those smallest addressable elements they could stay like that forever on the edge of the slope with the point and the weight. Wheel of Fortune Knee, floor, feet passing from right to left and just as it leaves the hand the hand is filled again. The eyes try not to look before the purple line reaches round. Reigned, will reign, have reigned, and without a kingdom. A compulsion loop. Knight of squares. A set of shifting coordinates with edges and faces and vertices arranged in four rotations turned over and around. Two of circles. Twelve inches between the Achilles, 
toes in opposite direction. The space between them is bathed in light or a shadow, with no terminating condition wrapped around a growing sentiment. Four of Pentagons. One foot, twelve inches in front of the other, heels aligned. A castle and a heraldic banner commands. One foot, twelve inches in front of the other, heel behind toe, toe in front of heel. The leader. The tip of the triangle, the point, it can see everything from up there. Two gables kiss so that sprayed lines can make a signal. The butterfly roof is rigid, but then the flexible, hostile elbows start to stumble and cross rhythm to the head of state. Page of triangles. Three profile views and one facing forward, an assistant, a performer of small tasks with a translucent, agile middle. It's actually quite interesting because if you think about how like the internet could be seen as this predictive thing that predicts things with algorithms and then this whole like online um, future telling and then how like the government's grading system was like going to be decided by this algorithm. I was talking to Libby Heaney who does a lot of work about like the internet about all of this and how yeah somehow I feel like your that way of using prediction is like to do with that. But also, if you believe in tarot, you could still say, though, there is some higher power that will mean that the algorithm might perform in a certain way in order for a specific person to get that vignette sequence. Oh, totally. And also, we had to put in certain things to make this happen that were, you know, like, uh, don't do the same card X number of times, because otherwise you would have hundreds of readings with the same card. Mm. And... um, the other thing is that we because it because it's not taking from a, a physical deck there were certain other stipulations like don't play the same card twice within a 10 card reading because mm. obviously it can keep selecting mm. from the same deck so mm. you could have 10 of the same card mm. so there was there are certain ways that the algorithm that we're always enforcing restrictions on the algorithms mm. You've been listening to The Silver Stream on Soho Radio. I'm creator and host, Byzantia Harlow, and for today's episode, Apathenia, I was joined by guest collaborator, artist, Candida Powell-Williams. That's all we've got time for for today's episode, but I'll be back for episode 13 on the 21st of September, Uh, so tune in then at 6pm on the Culture Channel. Thanks again, Candida, and to all those who tuned in. See you next time.